Um, so uh, today, or sorry, this week was a big uh, political week, and uh, lots of lots of stuff happening, and um, always gets me a little fretful, raises my anxiety level a little bit. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm not going to preach about politics, I promise that. But uh, it did get me thinking. Uh, it did start me, it started getting me to ask this question um, and uh, re- realize that Christians in general, especially Christians in America, sort of uniquely compared to Christians anywhere else in the world, uh, Christians have a very strange problem. Um, and uh, so the, the problem is that uh, we have a hard time navigating the tension between being faithful to God on the one hand, but also living in an idolatrous culture. Uh, anybody else ever struggle with that? Now, now every culture in the world is idolatrous. It's not just the American culture. Uh, um, you know, uh, but part of what, what makes it hard is that in America, there's this expectation that we participate in, and that, that's why I brought up politics, we participate in um, our life together, our national life together, uh, in, in a way that isn't necessarily required of citizens in, in uh, all other countries. And so, uh, so we have this weird thing we're doing where, where, where we're trying to navigate how do we be faithful to God but we're in this very idolatrous culture. And last fall, we, we had a sermon series on the idols that we have around sex and the idols that we have around power and the idols that uh, we have um, around money. Well, those are just three of the idols that we're struggling with all the time. There's, there's dozens, probably hundreds of more idols. And, it, you know, um, our, the, our hearts are idol-making factories. So uh, even if we didn't have all this pressure from culture, our hearts would still be pumping out idols. So it doesn't help that we live in this uh, culture where there's all this pressure to adopt uh, idols. Uh, and so, so we're, we live in this tension. We walk in this, on this tightrope. And, uh, and that's, that's what this message is about today. It's especially hard because, uh, and, and I, I brought up politics for this reason, uh, we, don't, we can't see visibly with our own eyes, we can't see the king, the king that we're loyal to. Our, our highest political loyalty is commanded by Jesus, King Jesus. And this year of the just king, we're trying to remember, figure out what that means uh, to have Jesus be our highest loyalty. And in the, the, the middle of that, we, we can't see him, all right? There's no physical place on earth for us to go and see him sitting on his throne and uh, remind ourselves that's who we're loyal to and it's his laws that we're following. So so it's a, it's a struggle. It's a, it's a struggle for Christians. Well, there is an answer, and um, uh, just one answer. There, there, there's, there's, there's probably several answers, but I'm going to focus on one today. And uh, this, this, this answer that helps us walk this tightrope, um, this, is, this is really a mindset. And that answer is that we are exiles. We're exiles. What does that mean? You got to listen to the rest of the sermon, all right, to figure out what that what that means. Uh, so uh, I, I want to bring you to a, a passage of scripture that uh, in the in the New Testament, where uh, the apostle Peter basically says that we are exiles. In First Peter chapter two, verse eleven, Peter says this: 
Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your souls. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In this passage is a, 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 a critical little gem that we need to unpack to figure out what it means to have the mindset of exiles. When uh, Peter uses these words, aliens and strangers, now he's referring back to uh, Abraham, first of all, who was an alien and stranger, uh, where he was, where God had him journeying. But he's also referring to the era of the exiles, the era of the exiles in Israelite history. So uh, just going to very briefly touch on that history for those of you who don't know. Uh, first, really quick review um, about this idea of a, a king in, uh, throughout uh, the ancient uh, Israelite culture. Um, uh, starting way back with Abraham, one of the promises that God gave Abraham was that kings were going to come from him. Abraham had no idea what that meant. He, he only had this one son and uh, in his very old age, and no sign of any, anyone else, but uh, God said kings were going to come from him. Uh, fast forward hundreds of years, Moses is uh, told, be sure uh, um, Moses uh, is given directions for how to appoint a king in a correct way. It has to be a king that God chooses. Uh, and then um, uh, uh, fast forward um, centuries later, the people ask for a king. And uh, um, uh, God, though, they ask for the, with the wrong motives. They want to follow this human king instead of God. And, uh, and so uh, God actually considers that a rejection of uh, himself as their king. Um, so they're starting to get into some hot water uh, with that. But God redeems all that, and he sets David on uh, the throne. And uh, he says that uh, the Lord himself, he promises to David, the Lord himself will establish a house for you. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David gets this crazy, extravagant promise that uh, his descendants would sit on this throne, and they would rule over the kingdom uh, forever, but still have no idea what that means, what that's going to look like. But then, just at the height of that promise, when it looks like, you know, things are going to go great from here on out, the kingdom tears apart, and uh, the whole kingdom of Israel, the, you've got the ten tribes in the north, they, they break off from David, they rebel against him, and, uh, uh, and, and then uh, David's descendants are only ruling over uh, this, uh, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin with a few... Uh, few migrants from the north who came down. And uh, so things look like they're this fulfillment God promises isn't coming anytime soon, or so it would appear. Then things get even worse because those the, the Israelites in the north um, kept embracing idolatry, and it was actually led by their kings. These The kings who were supposed to represent God actually would led them to embrace idols. And, uh, and so... Um, we have in the year 722, uh, the northern kingdom is conquered and utterly destroyed by the mighty Assyrian Empire. And it says that all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations, as well as the practices that the kings had introduced. So 
uh, it was the kings themselves who had introduced these idolatrous practices that got them into trouble. Um, and they would not li- listen and were stiff-necked as their fathers. Well, then, fast forward uh, about 150 years uh, later, there's this w- all that's left of the descendants of Abraham are this, this one little kingdom, Judah, and uh, it's the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin and a few other migrants from the north. And uh, uh, they, even though they had a few decent kings, um, most of them were bad, and their, their kings led them into more idolatry. And so the empire of Babylon comes and conquers them. It says, the Lord their God, their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the Babylonians. He handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king of Babylon, and he carried them into exile in Babylon. So this little, this little tiny kingdom of Judah that remains gets carted away, and they have to live as captives in this foreign country. And this is the beginning of the exile. So when I uh, said that we need to have the mindset of the exile— Uh, of exiles, I mean that we have to have the mindset that these people who were carted off from their homeland in Judah to Babylon, we need to somehow adopt the same mindset that they had. So today, we are going to talk about exile and expectation for the just king. Exile and expectation. You see, I believe that we will thrive as Christians in, a, in an idolatrous culture if we can figure out what the exiles somehow figured out. Some, somehow, they got their mind around a way to thrive for God, even though they didn't have their land, they didn't have their, uh, they didn't have a king anymore, uh, they didn't have um, uh, the temple, they didn't have Jerusalem, all the things that were markers of their identity, all the things that they could say, uh, yeah, this is what makes us special people. All those things were gone. And sometimes we as Christians feel that way. Um, And and sometimes, unfortunately, uh, we get swept up into culture wars and uh, we think that that we sort of, in our culture war fighting, we are sometimes trying to grasp for things uh, that are also identity markers for us that makes us feel like we're Christians and this is a Christian nation and, and, and we need those things and we need to fight for those things. But the reality is we're exiles in an idolatrous uh, culture. So how do we thrive? How do we thrive? So uh, I'm going to start out, we're going to try to, we're going to take a look at the lives of three of these exiles and we're going to try to draw lessons from these three lives uh, to try to figure out what does it mean to live as an exile? What does it mean to live as an exile? So first person, probably the most famous of all the exiles was Daniel. You guys have probably heard about Daniel. He's most famous for getting stuck in a den of lions. Um, His good friends were famous for getting stuck into a furnace of fire that burned up everything around it, uh, but they survived it. 
Um, so Daniel, he was this uh, interesting fellow. At the beginning of the 70 years of exile, he was probably 12, 13, 14 years old. Uh, he came from an important family. We're not really sure which, but he was carted off to Babylon. He proved himself to be so um, talented and so trustworthy and so hardworking that he, he won the um, admiration and appreciation of uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, he won the admiration and appreciation of the, the uh, bureaucracy there, and he uh, was exalted to a very high position, uh, not only during the era of Babylon, but actually Babylon was uh, partway through the exile, was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and uh, he survived that conquest and was actually then served uh, the king of uh, Persia. And so he, had, he ended up with this very important influ influential role. But the whole time, Daniel was faithful to God. So we don't have time to go through his whole story. But uh, if you will look with me at just a few of the things, the few of the ways he stayed faithful to God. Um, first of all, uh, he refused to defile himself with royal food. In Leviticus, there's this whole uh, series of things that the Jews were to eat and not eat, and he stayed faithful to what he was supposed to eat. Um, he never bowed down to idols. He refused to bow down to idols. And in fact, some of the most uh, exciting stories in his book are about those moments where he refused to bow down to idols. Um, he always credited God as his source. Um, when uh, he other people were amazed at his wisdom and insight, and they were so amazed at it that, you know, they, they said, oh, Daniel, you're just, you're amazing. But he always gave God the credit for um, uh, all the miraculous things that he saw and understood. At the same time, he insisted that, oops, he insisted that the kings he served, these idolatrous kings who themselves were being worshipped, he insisted that they acknowledge the true God. Now, you have to understand how dangerous that was for him. And in fact, that's, that's exactly what, how he got into the lion's den, was insisting that uh, the king serve and acknowledge the true living God. And that meant he spoke truth to power, all right? He wasn't afraid to stand up and speak truth to uh, power that could have easily crushed him, in fact, tried to crush him and destroy him. But what's interesting about this is that Daniel respected the kings that he served and the kings that he confronted, and he worked hard to be valuable to them. Does that make sense? A lot of us, we want to spread justice in the world just by, by protesting uh, power, and that can be helpful at times. But when we, we look at Daniel's example, Daniel actually made himself valuable to those in power, and he actually demonstrated respect for them in such a way uh, that he got even more of their trust. And in fact, the, the king who threw him into the uh, lion's den, uh, he, he, he did it because he, he was trying to keep his own law. But he, you could tell he was desperate that Daniel would somehow survive because uh, Daniel was so valuable to him. So that's an important uh, thing to think about, Daniel's life. Daniel was able to stay faithful to God resist the idolatrous culture around him, and he did it in a way that was uh, very respectful and uh, very uh, committed to his duty. Another guy during the exile, we've probably all heard about, is, is Nehemiah. All right. 
Nehemiah. Interesting fellow. Nehemiah was, um, uh, he, this is at the end of the exile. He had a job, a very important job in the kingdom. He was a cupbearer to the king. And cupbearers, that is a very important job. Uh, The cupbearers not only brought the cup to the king when he was thirsty. uh, And anyone know what the cupbearer had to do uh, when uh, the king wanted to take a drink? Yeah, he he checked the poison. He had to drink first out of the exact same cup. And uh, he did that so that if someone had poisoned the king, and people were always trying to poison kings, uh, the cupbearer would die first. And uh, so he took his life into his hands literally every single day. Uh, but he was a Jew, and uh, he uh, had heard word that things in Jerusalem were just falling apart. The, the exile was, the 70 years were done, but, but Jerusalem was in shambles. The temple was in shambles. And so he went to the king and asked the king to be sent back to Jerusalem with a bunch of resources and a, a bunch of other people to try to rebuild everything. So he's, he's famous for that. Now, some interesting things about Nehemiah, he um, prayed and relied on God. Similar to Daniel, Nehemiah was always faithful to pray and rely on the true God, even though he was surrounded by idols that, you know, were, were eager to have him uh, pray to them. He, uh, he boldly approached the king and asked for favor, uh, which took a lot of guts. And he even prayed while talking to the king. If you read that story in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, uh, he's talking to the king, and the king asks him a question, and he actually turns and prays to God in the middle of talking to the king, which could have been taken as disrespectful, but he was uh, bold in praying to the king, praying to uh, the Lord while he was talking to the king. Um, But at the same time, he fulfilled his duty as cupbearer, and he cultivated trust with the king. Okay, the king was very trusting of Nehemiah uh, because of how trustworthy he had proven to be. A lot of us want to just subvert and upset the idolatrous culture uh, without um, uh, cultivating trust <laughs> with uh, the idolaters. And we need to actually do both. We need to resist the idolatrous culture around us. And at the same time, we need to prove ourselves to be trustworthy people, the kind of people that others can depend on, the kind of people that idolaters can depend on and say, yeah, I don't, I don't know, I don't believe all that stuff they believe, but boy, they are dependable. Boy, they sure, uh, they show up when they're supposed to show up. They, they, they do what they say they're going to do. Um, I can depend on them. I don't need to worry. If I give them a job, if I give them an assignment, I know it's going to get done. Okay, that's the kind of person Nehemiah was. That's the kind of person Daniel was. All right. Uh, another, probably the most, uh, after Daniel, probably the most famous exile of all was Esther. Now, Esther summarized the story. Um, the, uh, the, kings, uh, the king had a whole harem of wives, but he had one special wife who got to be the, the queen. And uh, his queen, uh, Vashti, she showed him some disrespect publicly, so he got rid of her. And then he had sort of this beauty contest where he... Uh, tried to select another, someone who would be his queen, and Esther was uh, selected. Esther was a Jew, uh, and her family had been in exile now for uh, generations, and uh, at one point, uh, one of the king's uh, servants, uh, one of his highest royal officials, Haman, hatched this plot to kill all of the Jews who were living there, 
and uh, um, and so uh, Esther and her family and her all of her relatives and everyone she knew was in great danger of being totally destroyed. And so she hatched a counterplot to try to intervene and persuade the king to save uh, to save the Jews and punish Haman. Well, it all worked out. Um, and a few things we can learn from her life was that um, she sacrificed her comfort and safety to rescue the Jews. This famous line that she has, if I perish, I perish. All right. Uh, and, and, and from when you look at the context of the, of the story, you can tell that she, she could have gone unnoticed. The king didn't necessarily know that she was a Jew. Haman didn't necessarily know that she was a Jew. And so because they didn't know, she could have survived this mass genocide of Jewish people uh, and, and been just fine. But instead, she put herself in danger by approaching the king. Now, that culture and that time, uh, the queen wasn't like the queen of England, who's in charge uh, of, her, of her government. Um, she was also a slave uh, of, of the king. She just got to wear pretty decorations. Um, but uh, nevertheless, she, uh, in spite of all the things she could lose, she sacrificed her comfort and her safety to rescue the Jews. Um, she also, just like Nehemiah and just like Daniel, she uh, depended on God to do the heavy lifting in this situation. She told her uncle Mordecai, uh, you know, gather all the Jews fast and pray for me when I go and approach the king. Um, she and the Jews were depending on God to do the real work of changing the king's heart and, and altering this, what seemed to be an unalterable situation. Um, she also listened to uh, godly counsel. She uh, listened very closely to uh, what her wise uncle had to say, um, and, uh, and, and, and that's exactly what a lot of us need to do when we're, when we're confronting the powers, when we're um, speaking truth to power, when we're dealing with an idolatrous culture. We need wise, godly counsel, so we need to turn to each other and ask for that godly counsel. But... Interestingly, Esther did it in a culturally appropriate way for the time. Um, and she didn't work for the downfall of the whole empire. Uh, she didn't want to just wipe the whole system off the face of the earth. She actually did it in a way uh, that was within the culturally appropriate bounds uh, for the time. So how did, how did these three... I, I want to draw uh, four lessons from the lives of these, these three uh, exiles... And, and try to figure out what was it about their mindset that helped them thrive, bear great fruit for God, do amazing exploits for God, uh, be used powerfully for God, and, and uh, still be faithful to him, um, and, and, and still confront the idolatrous culture. All right? uh, for me, that's really important to try to figure out in this, in this culture that we're living in today because we're, we're constantly having this pressure exerted on us to give in to the idols around us. It's just, uh, anyone else ever feel that, that pressure to give in to the idols around us? And if it's not one idol, it's another idol, and there's dozens and dozens and dozens of them, and they come up in sneaky ways. So I want to know, how am I supposed to be faithful to God, bear fruit for God, and thrive if I'm having this constant pressure? Well, I think that uh, what these three people did and the other exiles who thrived, there were, there were many of them who thrived, is they actually listened 
to some advice that was given to them at the beginning of the exile. So uh, this exile lasted for 70 years. And way back at the beginning of it, right when the king of Babylon was coming and tearing apart Jerusalem and uh, binding up everybody and sending them off to Babylon, right when that was happening in the year 586 B.C., there was uh, a particular prophet named Jeremiah, okay? And Jeremiah wrote a letter to these people who were going into exile. Jeremiah, along with some of the poorest people in the land, got to stay in the land. Uh, The king just wanted mostly the rich people to come with him into Babylon. And the poorest people, he said, okay, you guys just stay right there. Well, Jeremiah stayed with them, and he wrote a letter to all the people going into exile. And I think that Daniel and Nehemiah and Esther and the other exiles who thrived, actually listened to this letter. They actually paid attention to it, okay? It makes a difference when you pay attention to advice from God. So Jeremiah, this is what he says in Jeremiah 29. It's not everybody's favorite verse. I know a third of you, at least, uh, this is your very favorite verses in this this chapter, uh, in this this letter, but that's not what I'm going to quote from today. Chapter 29, verse 7 says this, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, this is really interesting advice. Up until this point, you have to remember, the Jews were a distinct culture, civilization, had their own country, their own government, their own king, uh, they were independent. They had, but but uh, up until this point, everybody else got to be those people. Everybody else got to be them. It was us versus them. But now, while they're in exile, there's this. They they're mixed up with them. Okay, they don't get their own country anymore. They don't get their own temple anymore. They don't get their own king anymore. Uh, it looks like all of their identity markers have been removed. And in fact, there's no sign of any of those identity markers returning anytime soon. And so here, God, the same God who would at times give them victory over them when them would attack, God is telling them, seek the peace and prosperity of them, of those idolaters, those people who are consciously lifting up false gods and bowing down to them and putting pressure on you to also bow down to them. Seek their peace and prosperity. Now, this this phrase, peace and prosperity, uh, it's actually one word in, in ancient Hebrew, shalom. You guys have probably heard that word shalom before. We often hear it get, tr- get translated as peace, but peace is not an adequate translation. Um, uh, The word shalom can be translated peace, welfare, well-being, well, happy, safe, safety, health, prosperity. All those things are wrapped up in the idea of shalom. And here, these people who, up until this point, had the luxury of thinking of those people as those people, now are required by God to seek the shalom of all these people around them. Okay? Do Do you get how weird this is if you were a Jew. How strange, how new to their mindset this would be. This is the introduction of a completely different way of thinking for them. Okay, do you guys, do you guys get that? Now, this is important, and I see still some blank stares, but this is important for us because here in America today, 
we would like to, many Christians would like to think of those non-Christians as them, those people. And yet God has located us physically intermixed with those people. And he's actually calling us to seek the shalom of those people. Does that, does that make sense? Okay, we would really like it if we had the luxury of the ancient Jews before the, the exile where we get to have the safety of our own little country and there's those people over there that we're against. But instead, Peter, as we read at the beginning of this, Peter says we need to have this mindset of the exile and realize that we're intermixed with them and our job right now on this earth while we're in exile is to seek their shalom. Okay, I hear one praise God. That's good. A few more praises. God, come on, let's go. All right, so four lessons from this letter that Jeremiah wrote and from the lives of these exiles who actually listened to this letter. Um, first of all, <clears throat> we need, like the exiles, to intend to bless others. We need to make it our mindset. Now, a lot of us, we decide if we're going to bless other people and we're going to bless those idolaters depending on how we feel when we wake up in the morning, okay? We are grumpy. Nobody gets my blessing, all right? Did you see what a problem that is? Okay, Daniel, Nehemiah, Esther, and the other exiles, when they woke up in the morning they, to fulfill this letter written from Jeremiah, they needed to intend to bless those idolaters around them. Yes, that even means your boss. Yes, that even means that coworker. Yes, that even means that other student that you annoys you, who's sitting next to you uh, in uh, in your classroom. Okay. Yes, that even means that um, that that godforsaken sibling of yours. All right. Um, you know who knows where they're headed, but God intends for you to bless them, and you need to wake up with the intention to bless them. Does that make sense? You and I are in exile, all right? We're in exile, and we don't get the luxury of hiding in our little Christian conclave where, or enclave where, where we, we get to hide from the, from the big bad world. We're, God plunked us down right in the middle of the big bad world, and our job while we're in exile is to bless, okay? To bring shalom, bring peace, prosperity, health, welfare, wellness, well-being to the people, the idolaters around us. Okay? You guys following me? All right. Secondly, at the same time, just like Daniel, just like Nehemiah, just like Esther, we also need to intend to glorify God. Again, many of us just like blessing people, whether or not we decide to glorify, glorify God depends on how we feel when we wake up. But the people who actually live this out, people like Daniel and Nehemiah and Esther, are the people who wake up choosing and intending to glorify God however they feel, okay? Um, we saw from Daniel's life, we saw from Nehemiah's life, we saw from Esther's life that the glory of God was uppermost in their mind, all right? I, I, and I want us to reread uh, what I read at the beginning. First Peter says this, Again, beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers, your exiles, aliens and strangers, 
abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, think you're cool? No. What does it say? Glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter, this is New Testament now. This, we know for sure this applies directly to us because Peter wants it to apply directly to all the Christians that followed him. Our good deeds are in, uh, and, and our intention to bless, our intention to spread shalom and to bring shalom to people around us is supposed to catch people's attention so that they then look to God and, and think, this God you serve, I, I don't really understand it or what you believe. It's kind of it sounds weird to me. But whatever it is, it's really cool. And whatever you're doing, it, it, it's something about it is, is cool. They're, the goal of our good behavior is so that other people would glorify God, that they would make much of God. That they would say, oh, this God that you serve really is actually all that and a bag of chips. All right? As this, this is important. So we need to intend, just like we need to intend to bless others, and especially those idolaters around us, we need to intend to glorify God. That, that's, that's, how, that's how Daniel survived all those decades that he served these idolatrous kings. That's how Esther survived. That's how Nehemiah survived. They woke up every morning intending to glorify God. And by the way, this is also, this is why we're doing Alpha, okay? I want to do another shameless plug for Alpha that's just starting in a, in a week and a half. And why we need help, why we need you guys to invite friends, why we need you guys to invite relatives, why we need you guys to talk it up. Um, this is why uh, we want to share the good news about Jesus with other people is because that glorifies God. Alpha, along with a lot of other things we do, uh, brings glory and honor to God. And we have this unique opportunity here right now in our little church to bring glory to God through things like Alpha. All right. <clears throat> Next thing, the third lesson I want to draw from this is that through it all, we need to expect the kingdom and its king. Now, it really struck me when I was thinking through what those, the, the, the exiles were going through, okay? So here they were after centuries of watching their kingdom shrink, 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 get uh, hemmed in on every side by enemies. Finally, at one point, the king of Babylon comes and just carts them all away. And he tears down the temple, which God had said uh, was going to be there forever, and uh, gets rid of their king, which God had told David, you're always going to have a king on the throne. All their identity markers are gone. Can you imagine how depressed those exiles were, especially the first generation of them that watched it all disappear in front of their eyes? Can you imagine how deeply depressed? I mean, just put yourselves in their shoes. Put, their, put yourself back in their emotions for a minute. When you imagine the, the, the dismal, despair. I mean, we, many of us have struggled with despair and hopelessness in our lives. What, what if 
something similar were to happen today and everything you loved, everything you knew, everything you hoped in was just carted off and taken away and destroyed. And there was no hope of anything ever coming back together. Just imagine your emotions at, in, in such a moment. All right. And, and, and worse than that, Jeremiah told them this is going to go on for 70 years. That means if you were over 10 years old, was there really any hope of seeing it all, for you seeing it all come back together again? No. You, you were, if you were over 10 years old, you were pretty much, this, this is the rest of my life now. I'm a captive. It's all gone. Okay? Imagine that. But people like Daniel, people like Esther, people like Nehemiah, they continued for all those decades, they continued to expect that there was going to be a kingdom coming and that kingdom was going to have a king. Okay? They didn't know how it was going to happen. They didn't know how things were going to get restored. They didn't know how things were going to come back together. But they continued to expect. And so one of the gifts that the, uh, the Jews who went into exile were given was that they got to learn what it was like to expect something was coming. All right? And that's one of the gifts we learn when we're in exile. We're in exile right now. We don't know when Jesus is returning. We don't know. We, Jesus told us very clearly he's not going to tell us, and, and, and we're never going to figure it out and never, ever listen to a false prophet who tells you he's figured it out because they're false. Um, uh, and, and yet we're supposed to live in expectation, all right? Jesus wants us to live in expectation, and if we would get our brains around this idea of living in expectation, you, we behave differently when we're living in expectation, don't we, all right? When, when you know somebody's, you know, somebody calls you up and says, I'm, I'm coming to pick you up in the car. I'll, I'll be there in about 10 minutes. Those next 10 minutes are very unlike the minutes right before, aren't they? In those in those ten minutes, you're 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 up. You've gotten everything ready to go. You're uh, you know maybe if you're going somewhere that you're excited about, uh, you know you got some uh, jitters in your stomach. You're excited. It's it's all good. You've got some hope going. Um, when we live in expectation, we live differently than when we don't live in expectation. We are in exile here. Peter told us we're in exile, and if we uh, live without expectation, we're not going to do the kinds of things that Daniel did. We're not going to do the kinds of things that Nehemiah did. We're not going to do the kinds of things that Esther did. We're not, when it comes time to sacrifice, we're not going to do what Esther did and said, if I, if I perish, I perish. We're not going to do the kinds of things Nehemiah did where we actually go directly to the king and say, I, I need you to give me a bunch of resources and send me back to Jerusalem. We're not going to do what Daniel did and said, uh, actually, king, um, it's God that gave me this dream and, uh, and you need to listen to him. You need to acknowledge that he's the real God. We're not going to do that if we don't live with this expectation that the Israelites, or, or that the uh, people in exile live with, all right? Last thing I'm going to say is that we need, while we're in exile, we need to rely on God in the mystery and in the confusion, okay? By definition, the exile is very confusing. There's a lot of, is this godly? Is this not godly? Remember the Jews, uh, if there was any question about living a godly way, they just could go to the Levites and Levites would explain it to them. And it was all really clear to them. Uh, um, Most of them didn't live like they were supposed to, but if they wanted to, it was all clear to them. When they were in exile, 
the temple was gone, the, um, the, the, the Levites weren't doing their job anymore, um, everything, uh, the, the king was gone, uh, their whole, all their national identity markers were gone, everything was gone, and so they had to live in this very confusing time. Just in the same way, we are living with similar, if not worse, confusion around us right now. And what does it mean to live as a Christian? Um, what does it mean to be faithful to God when it's so hard and it's so confusing? And so the answer is what the Israelites, or sorry, what these exiles did is they relied on God in the mystery and confusion. And I just want to say uh, three things about, about what it means to rely on God. First of all, pray. All right. We already looked at Nehemiah. He actually prayed while he was having a conversation with the king. All right. You can actually do that while you're in the middle, in the thick of confronting power, while you're in the middle and in the thick of, of confusing idolatry. Pray. Um, Daniel prayed. Okay. Daniel, uh, that's why he got in trouble, was he uh, got on his knees and uh, prayed to the living God when he was supposed to be praying to this idol. Um, and people caught him in the middle of prayer. But he prayed, and because he relied on God, that God came through for him. Esther prayed. She told all of the, um, the she told Mordecai, get all the Jews together and fast and pray for me um, while I go do this, all right? So pray. Um, probably the most important thing you and I can do, if, 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 you're, if you're confused, all right, anyone ever feel confused by the culture around us? Okay, a few mm's, but... Okay, thank you. Everyone should be saying that because unless you're not confused, then you got some problems, okay? <clears throat> but <clears throat> um, <laughs> if you've ever dealt with confusion about how do I be faithful to God in the middle of this idolatrous culture, your answer is to seek God. A, a lot of us stop seeking God when we get confused. When we get confused, that's exactly and precisely when we need to start seeking God and praying, okay? That's the most important time to start seeking God and praying. Don't, when, when you get confused, like, oh, I, I, I don't know, I just, I just I don't know, figure it out, or maybe something on YouTube will explain it to me, or I don't, I don't know, maybe something. Uh, no, pray. Get on your knees. Pray. Seek God, all right? Secondly, part of relying on God, abide in the teaching. Of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I just want to read this from you. This is from 2 John. This is one of those letters nobody ever reads. I don't know if it's because it's too short or it's too convicting. I don't know why nobody ever reads it, but nobody ever reads it. <clears throat> um, but in 2 John, I just want to read this, and I want you to, to listen carefully. It says, um, John says this, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. I'm reading with, from verse 5. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers. We're surrounded by many deceivers, okay, including in our culture. Many deceivers. So was John's audience. They were surrounded by many deceivers. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded f fully. So John is concerned there's some danger here that these Christians could lose uh, what they've, you know, all their, the goodness they've discovered in Christ. It says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. All right? Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father 
and the Son. You and I need to continue in or abide in Christ's teaching. We're surrounded by deceivers. There's just as many, if not more, deceivers today as there were back in John's time, as there were back in Daniel and Esther's time. Now is the time to abide in or continue in the teachings of Christ. When you're confused, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe there's something on Snapchat that's going to explain what, why I'm so confused. No, turn to the teaching of Christ. Continue in the teaching of Christ. Abide in it. Absorb it. Live it. Eat, drink it. Breathe it. Study it. All right? Abide in the teaching of Christ. Cherish it. Um, one cool thing I recently learned. Uh, the, so, okay, the temple had been destroyed for the Jews. They, had, they, they, they couldn't use the temple anymore. How were they supposed to worship God when it's very clear in the law that part of being a Jew, part of being an Israelite, is that you go to the temple and worship there, all right? Well, it was during the exile that they pieced together all the psalms. Now, most of the psalms have been written before this time, but they weren't all collected in one spot. What the exiles did is they pieced together the psalms, and so the psalms that we have now, all 150 of them, came together during this exile, and what the what people like Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah would do is they would read and pray these psalms. They were abiding in the teaching. They were continuing in the teaching. And, and the psalms are kind of like this mobile temple. If you ever read through the psalms, almost every individual psalm leads you on a journey from kind of being stuck in your own pain and suffering and your selfishness and self-absorption into the, into the presence of God. Almost every psalm does that. And if you read the whole thing, all the, all the psalms together do that. So, so that was how they were abiding in the teaching God had given them by using the psalm book back during the exile. We're in the exile. We need to abide in the teaching of Christ right now. Um, and uh, interesting, one more thing I'm going to say about Second John. The, it says here, uh, we need to, I'm just going to read this again. It says, um, this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. It's really important in our confusion not to reverse that and say, well, uh, I'm going to obey the commands that seem the most loving to me. Does that make sense? The way we're supposed to love is in accordance with his commands. So his commands actually decide for us how we're supposed to love other people, how we're supposed to bring shalom to other people. All right, don't do the reverse. The reverse is uh, say, well, I'll, I'll... I'll do the commands that kind of feel like they're the most loving to me. No, you, you love, you decide what's love based on what the commands say. Okay? All right, got a lot of silence on that one. It's, hopefully people are thinking about that. All right, should have gotten an amen more than that. But okay, <clears throat> the last thing I want to say, all right, thank you. The last thing I want to say about relying on God is beware of the false prophets who say that your exile is going to be easier than Jesus promised. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm-mm. So, <clears throat> here's the deal, guys. The exile was 70 years long. Now, right before Jeremiah wrote this letter, there he God told him to do this really strange thing. God told him to take a yoke that was normally worn by oxen for plowing, 
God told him to put the yoke on and walk the, the yoke on and walk through the streets of Jerusalem and say, "You're all going into captivity. You're all going to wear the yoke of the king of Babylon." Well, then a false prophet came up to him, pulled the yoke off of Jeremiah, broke it over his knee, and said, "This is what the Lord declares." Uh, in two years, the king of Babylon is going to be wiped out and everything's going to be restored. All right? But it was 70 years later before they got to come back. Okay? There are tons of false prophets out there right now, not just out there, in the church. There's false prophets in the church who are telling you that this exile that we're in is going to be easier than what Jesus promised. It's going to last shorter than how Jesus says it's going to last. We, we, Jesus didn't tell us how long it was going to last. We don't, have, we don't know that it's going to be 70 years. But while we're in the exile, we need not to do what the false prophet Hananiah wanted the people to do and just think, oh, it's all, it's all going to resolve itself. It's all going to get better. We, 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 don't, we don't have to live this way anymore. Everything's going to get better. Beware of those false prophets. And like Daniel did, like Nehemiah did, like Esther did, put your head down and seek God and trust in him and look to him and then do what he tells you to do while you're in exile. And in that time, while we're in exile, we don't know how long it's going to last, intend to bless other people, intend to bless those idolatrous people around you, intend to glorify God, expect the kingdom and its king, even though we don't know how long it's going to be, and rely on God in the mystery and in the confusion. So if the, if the um, worship leaders could come back up, they're going to lead us in this next song, and uh, we're going to, in this time, I just encourage you, use this song to refocus yourself on Jesus in the middle of the exile. you, and that we would live with expectancy that the kingdom and its king is coming. Give us the grace to intend to bless others, to spread shalom to the world around us. Give us the grace to intend to glorify you. Give us the grace to accept you, and give us the grace, I pray, Lord, to rely on you through it all. We ask for this grace now as we, as we go from here. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.